Alright. One last judgment for tonight. It parallels the picture of Israel that we saw back in Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16 gave us an entire overview picture of Israel. This one's not as long, but that one talked about Israel, you may recall, as the abandoned waif who became the adored wife and ultimately the adulterous whore. Well, this chapter is equally explicit, I warn you. It describes Israel and Judah, however, as two harlots. Or number five in our outline, the faithless sisters. The faithless sisters. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother, and they played the harlot in Egypt. They played the harlot in their youth. There their breasts were pressed, and there their virgin bosom was handled. And yes, that means exactly what it says. Their names were Oholah, the elder, and Oholibah, her sister. And they became mine. And they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Samaria is Oholah, Jerusalem is Oholibah. Little explanation here. Aside from the fact that there are two sisters here, and in Ezekiel 16 it just talked about Israel as, as one adulterous harlot, there's one other difference, and that is in chapter 16, the focus of the harlotry was idolatry. In this chapter, the focus of the harlotry is foreign affairs. It's foreign alliances. It's the way that both of these nations, Israel and Judah, went after foreign countries for security rather than the Lord. Now you notice their names, Oholah and Oholibah. They both come from the same Hebrew root word, which is Ochel. And Ochel means tent or dwelling. Exodus 27 first uses the phrase tent of meeting for the tabernacle, God's sanctuary, His dwelling among His people. And so Oholah here, if you want to make a note of this, perhaps even in the margin of your Bible, Oholah means her own tent. Oholah has her own tent. After the kingdom of Israel split into two, the northern ten tribes had their own tent. They had Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, her own tent. Oholibah means my tent is in her. My tent is in her. The southern kingdom of Judah had Jerusalem, God's tent. God's city. And within God's city, the temple itself. And so the Lord says, My tent was in Oholibah, that is Judah and Jerusalem. Oholah had her own tent, and that was Samaria. You know, we can have one or the other. We can have our own tent, or we can have the Lord's tent dwelling in us. We can be like northern Israel, do it our own way, Or we can be like Judah, at least in terms of the fact that Jerusalem was at the center, the temple was at the center of that, and the Shekinah glory of God was in the center of the temple. Jesus said the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, pitched His tent, literally, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But you know what? As much as I love that verse, that the Lord became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus did one better after His ascension. Not only did the Lord become flesh and dwell among us, but by His Spirit, Jesus said in John 14.23, If anyone loves Me, He'll keep My word, and My Father will love him, and we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. 
His tent within me. Paul said in Romans 8.11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So we have Oholah, we have Oholabah. Verse 5, Oholah, Israel, Samaria. Oholah played the harlot while she was mine. She lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, her neighbors, who were clothed in purple, governors and officials, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her harlotries on them, all of whom were the choicest men of Assyria. And with all whom she lusted after, and all their idols, she defiled herself. She did not forsake her harlotries from the time in Egypt, for in her youth men had lain with her, and they handled her virgin bosom, and poured out their lust on her. Therefore I gave her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians, after whom she lusted. And they uncovered her nakedness, they took her sons and her daughters, but they slew her with the sword. Thus she became a byword among women, and they executed judgments on her. Oholah. The picture here, and it's interesting to me, I never really thought about it this way, but the people of Israel were drawn to Egypt for all the reasons that you and I are drawn to this world. Fashion. I love the way they dress. Horsemanship. Oh man, they ride cool horses. Just like we drive cool cars. They looked at these nations. It wasn't just political alliances. It was heart-level alliances. When they were in Egypt, the people kind of liked Egypt. God delivers them from Egypt, and what do they want to do? Go back to Egypt. Why? Because it was cool. Egypt's the bomb, man. And then Assyria, as they're up in the land, they start to notice in their trade and in their commerce back and forth with Assyria, man, you ought to see what is the latest in the fashion scene today. In the cutting edge of the world, Assyria. I want to be like that. I want to look like that. I want to act like that. And idolatry came naturally. God said, you want that? I'll give it to you. And Oholah went into captivity. Northern Israel was taken apart by Assyria. Did the younger sister Oholabah learn anything from her older sister? Hegel, the philosopher, not the Secretary of Defense, (laughs) said the only thing that men learn from the study of history is that men have learned nothing from the study of history. (laughs) Verse 11, her sister Oholabah saw this and yet she was more corrupt in lust than she, and her harlotries were more than the harlotries of her sister. Oh, she lusted after the Assyrians, governors and officials, the ones near, magnificently dressed, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. I saw that she had defiled herself. They both took the same way, that is, both Oholah and Oholabah. So she increased her harlotries, and she saw men portrayed on the wall, images of the Chaldeans. Portrayed with vermilion, that's a bright red color. Girded with belts on their loins and flowing turbans on their heads, all of them looking like officers, like the Babylonians and Chaldean, the land of their birth. And when she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her to the bed of love and defiled her with their harlotry. Now note this. 
And when she had been defiled by them, she became disgusted with them. That's a very interesting statement. It indicates historically that after Judah became a vassal state of Babylon, she chased after Babylon, she lusted for the things of Babylon, but when Babylon came and took control over her, Judah realized that Babylon was worse than Assyria or Egypt. And so she became came to the point where the harlot was disgusted with her own harlotry, with what was going on. Sin has a way of looking really good across the lines. It looks really enticing at first. We wouldn't do it if it didn't look good. We wouldn't be lured to it if it wasn't intriguing. And sin has a way of looking good and then later repulsing the heart. Once we engage in it, we become disgusted by it, at least as long as we have a conscience that is not seared. 2 Samuel 13 gives an interesting story. David's son Abnon had it bad for his half-sister Tamar. You may recall the story. With the help of of his kind of twisted cousin Jonadab, Amnon lures Tamar into his bedchamber. Tamar thinks she's just going to bring him some food because he's sick, he's not feeling well. He brings her into his bedchambers and he rapes her there. And 2 Samuel 13, 15 says, Then, immediately after the fact, it says, Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. For the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Tamar was all that Amnon desired. All he could think of until he had her. And then she became the object of his absolute disgust. We're told in 2 Samuel 13, 16, Amnon said to her, Get up, go away. But she said to him, No, because this is wrong in sending me away. It's, it's wrong. It's greater than the other that you have done to me. She actually pleads with him to go to David and ask for permission for her to become his wife, at least to make right out of this horrific wrong. And he says, No, get out of here. Get away from me. And she is shamed and horrified. He would not listen to her. And that's what sin does. Once our sin is actually sated, once it is fed, it becomes repulsive. You know that. I'm I'm not telling you anything you haven't experienced. But what do we do then? Do we like Amnon? Cower in shame and continue the sin? Or do we turn around and come back to Jesus who heals and forgives? You may right now, I don't know, but you may be sitting in in the midst of a puddle of sin. Something you don't know how to get out of. It's just so ugly and so bad and you don't want to have to deal with it. And you know what Jesus is saying? Can I just help you out of that? Repent. Well, Judah, like Amnon, is similarly disgusted by her alliance with Babylon. But instead of returning to the Lord, now Judah looks back to Egypt. Verse 18. She uncovered her harlotries and uncovered her nakedness and I became disgusted with her as I had become disgusted with her sister, yet she multiplied her harlotries. Remembering the days of her youth, when she played the harlot in the land of Egypt, she lusted after their paramours, or lovers, whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys, and whose issue is like the issue of horses. And yes, that does mean exactly what it sounds like it means. Thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth, when the Egyptians handled your bosom because of the breasts of your youth. 
Therefore, O Oholibah, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will arouse your lovers against you. Note that. From whom you were alienated, I will bring them against you, he says a second time, from every side. The Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekad and Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them. This is a coalition of the Babylonians. Desirable young men, governors and officials, all of them, officials and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. Those, in other words, who you lusted after, I'm bringing against you now. They will come, he says a third time, against you with weapons, chariots and wagons, with a company of peoples. They will set themselves a fourth time against you on every side with buckler and shield and helmet. And I will commit the judgment to them and they will judge you according to their customs. I will set my jealousy the fifth time against you, that they may deal with you in wrath. They will remove your nose and your ears, and your survivors will fall by the sword. They will take your sons and your daughters. And by the way, we've just left parable for literal. This is what would happen. This is what Babylon was going to do. Literal punishment. They will take your sons and your daughters and your survivors will be consumed by fire. They will strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I will make your lewdness and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt to cease from you so that you will not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give you into the hand of those whom you hate, into the hand of those from whom you were alienated. They will deal with you in hatred, take all your property, and leave you naked and bare. And the nakedness of your harlotries will be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotries. Know what this is? Judah's lovers turning against her. It's as the world turns. It is. This is absolutely as the world turns. It's a soap opera. Affairs and alliances with the world. Gang, listen. Affairs with the world always end the same way. They always end badly. Because as the world turns, understand the world will turn on you. It always does. Those with whom you have affairs, Judah... Assyria, Egypt, with Babylon, will turn on you, will come against you. Worldly alliances are never, and I can say this unequivocally, they are never good for Jesus' people. Oh, but this is a great business arrangement. Not if it's a worldly alliance. Not if it's set in the ways of the world. It is not good for you. What's a good marriage? Not if she's not a believer. Not if he doesn't know Jesus. It is not good for you. Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Let me give you a graphic example of what happened to Oholibah, of what happened to Judah here. In the tribulation period, Jesus reveals that the world and religion will climb in bed together. They will have an affair. A love affair of sorts. They will coexist, finally. For all the bumper stickers, it's going to happen. Okay, Those are prophetic on the backs of all those cars. But Jesus calls, what happens is this one world religion. Those who would say religion is the cause of the problem today will say, no, no, religion is the answer. We all need to be on board together. It's going to be universal. It'll be global. And Jesus calls the one world religion a whore. 
a harlot. You know what's going to happen? The world powers and Antichrist himself will even seem to be in support of this universal global church and then they will turn. And all those religious folk who think finally the church has has made the alliance that we've always wanted, now we can really save the world because we've become so much like the world, we'll just all do this together, we'll find out the truth. Revelation 17, 16 says, the ten horns which you saw, which are ten leaders of ten nations, don't have time to go further than that now, and the beast, Antichrist, These will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Do you get the picture here? The very organization of religion that the world powers will seem to at first support, they will consume. Any Christians, any churches, any church leaders who think today that getting in bed with the world is a good idea ought to think about three harlots, Ohola, Oholibah, and the woman who thinks she can ride the beast. Because in all three instances, what we have is the world turning against the harlot, turning against the one who thinks if we just make our churches look more like business buildings if we just soften the morality rhetoric a bit, if we just lighten the teaching of Scripture, if we just change a few things here and there, if we just would be more tolerant, we get in bed with the world and think that's going to get the world coming into, pouring into the churches. And it will not work. Because the world always turns. And we will see that one final time in the tribulation period. Well, verse 30 going on says, These things will be done to you because you have played the harlot with the nations, because you have defiled yourself with their idols. You have walked in the way of your sister, therefore I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, You will drink your sister's cup, which is deep and wide. You will be laughed at and held in derision. It contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it, then you will gnaw its fragments and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, bear now the punishment of your lewdness and your harlotries. Quickly, two cups stand out in Scripture. You've heard them before, the cup of blessing and the cup of wrath. David says in Psalm 23, 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Talking about the blessing of the Lord. The goodness of God. Isaiah 51.17 says, Rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of His anger, the chalice of reeling, you have drained to the dregs the cup of wrath. Two cups. And you know which of these two cups Jesus drank. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He accepted it. He said in Matthew 26.39, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. It wasn't a cup of blessing. It was the cup of the full wrath of God. And Jesus said, Yet not as I will, but as you will. May we never forget that Jesus drained the cup of wrath to the dregs 
that we might not drink from it. Verse 36, Moreover, the Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Oholah and Oholabah? Then declare to them their abominations. For they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. Thus they have committed adultery with their idols and even caused their sons whom they bore to me to pass through the fire to them as food. Again, they have done this to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and have profaned my Sabbaths. For when they had slaughtered their children for their idols, they entered my sanctuary on the same day to profane it. And lo, thus they did within my house. And people think, as long as I'm not doing on Sunday what I do the rest of the week, cool. As long as I compartmentalize my life and I've got this behavior in one place, but when I'm in the Lord's house, I look good. And the reality is, different than Israel, Israel would go up the mountain and they would have their orgies and they would have their pagan festivals. And then they would come down and go into the temple and God said, it's gotten so bad, you do the same thing on the same day. You go worship the idols and you come try to worship me. You're not even keeping it separate anymore. What's the point? Again, the dwelling of God is the sanctuary of the heart. His dwelling is a tent that goes wherever you go. Which means if we are profaning the Lord, we're doing it on the same day that we have already entered the temple that He dwells in, which is us, our spirits. Lord, help us keep the sanctuary clean. Furthermore, verse 40, they have even sent for men who come from afar to whom a messenger was sent and lo, they came for whom you bathed, painted your eyes and decorated yourselves with ornaments. And you sat on a splendid couch with a table arranged before it on which you had set my incense and my oil. The sound of a carefree multitude was with her and drunkards were brought from the wilderness with men of the common sort. And they put bracelets on the hands of the women and beautiful crowns on their heads. And then I said concerning her who was worn out by adulteries, will they now commit adultery with her when she is thus? But they went into her as they would go into a harlot. Thus they went into Oholah and to Oholabah, the lewd women. Why is it, and this is a little twisted, but I'll ask it anyway, why is it that men who occasion uh, houses of ill repute, those who would call on prostitutes, why is it that there that there's a tendency for them to want to find younger girls? It's because after a while, the older ones are kind of worn out. Not as alluring. And as a man walks down that sinful road, he wants young and fresh and vibrant and for the most part untouched. And God is making that comparison. I'm sorry to be brutal here, but God is making that comparison. He looks at Oholah, Samaria. He looks at Oholabah, Jerusalem, and He says, they are so worn out in their idolatries. Are these nations still going to come to her? And they do. Like an old harlot. Verse 45, but they, righteous men, will judge them with the judgment of adulteresses and with the judgment of women who shed blood because they are adulteresses and blood is on their hands. Good news, there are still righteous men around. 
there are still a few righteous souls in Jerusalem, some among the exiles. And God says, they will judge. For thus says that there are still a few righteous men in America. Mostly right here in the barn tonight. But there are a few. (laughs) For thus says the Lord God, bring up a company against them and give them over to terror and to plunder. The company will stone them with stones, cut them down with their swords. They will slay their sons and their daughters and burn their houses with fire. Thus, I will make lewdness cease from the land that all women may be admonished and not commit lewdness as you have done. Your lewdness will be requited upon you and you will bear the penalty of worshiping your idols. Thus you will know that I am the Lord your God. Here endeth the lesson. I told you it was heavy. 24 chapters of heavy. 24 chapters of intense judgment. We still have a little bit left over at the end of chapter uh, 24. We'll look at on Sunday. But let me just leave you with this thought tonight. When we sit here and go, judgment after judgment and depiction after depiction and portrayal after portrayal and parable after parable and it's brutal and it's ugly and it's harsh and man, I just want to get out of here and go watch some dumb show. (laughs) I want to end with this question. How was it for God? How was it for God who brought all these judgments? Who spoke prophetically of the judgments to come? In other words, this is what's coming. This is what's going to happen. Would that it not happen. Would that you change your way and turn back to me. But this is what is coming. And from the beginning of Ezekiel's ministry all the way up to 588, seven years now, Ezekiel has been preaching this. Seven years God has been speaking through this prophet, and you know hundreds of years prior to that, in fact, all the way back to Moses he spoke these prophecies. All of these judgments. God did it. God said it. And the word of the Lord, Ezekiel said, came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month, saying, Son of man, write the name of this day, this very day, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. And it seems to me, well, I might be reading into it a little bit here, but the closer we get to the judgment, the heavier the prophecies have gotten. As though the sorrow of God is increasing as though the weight of this is being felt more heavily in the heart of God. And i got to be honest, I think I'm starting to get that. There was a time in my young faith when the fruit of my faith was far more emotional than it is today. When it was much more frivolous. I was a youth pastor, what else could I be? No offense to Jake. And there was a time when my faith was certainly easier than it is today. I remember a time in our marriage, Cheryl and I, early on, where we said, let's just turn off the news and not get newspapers for a while. You see, we could do that back then. Because not much was going on anyway. I just didn't want to hear about it. And I figured I didn't need to hear about it. And here I am today. It's not that I love the news. I hate the news. i got to be honest. I don't like reading it at all. Well, why do you read it, Rick? Because I'm watching. I'm trying to make parallels and gain understanding between the Word of God and what's going on in the world around us. But I don't like it. And it depresses me and it brings me down. 
And nowadays my heart is heavier than it used to be. Partially because it's been pierced by this sword, I think, a few too many times. And so it starts to ache. And you're going, Rick, this is just getting worse. (laughs) Are you getting depressed on us? I think the word is sober. I'm getting more sober. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says, Since we are of the day, let's be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of our salvation. For all of this, we have the fruit of the Spirit. Praise God for that. I I, I would not survive this world without the fruit of the Spirit. Without His love, His joy, His peace. All these things that you can't get in the world anymore, but you get it from Him. And so yes, my heart gets heavy at times, but my joy is always there. And yes, the strain is wearisome at times, but my peace is always there. And as Jesus said in Matthew 9.15, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Those are the days in which we live. And so a little fasting now, a little mourning, might serve to keep us a little more sober until the morning dawns and the bridegroom comes to take us home. And He's coming. And He will take us to His Father's house and the joy there will be unparalleled. Let's bow. Father, I feel the weight, I think, to a degree, probably not nearly as much as Ezekiel did, but I feel the weight of coming judgment. I know what Your Word says is about to come on this whole world. I know from one end to the other the tribulation is going to happen. And I know your wrath is going to be poured out. And I know evil men will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, as your word tells us. I know all this. And you call me to be a joyful Christian. (laughs) May my joy be found in Jesus Christ. Father, may our joy be found in the sweet and nourishing fruit of your Spirit. May we trust in You. But Lord, may we also do so with a bit of soberness in these last days. Aware of what's coming. And Father, loving people around us, not just with a passion that is fleeting, but with truly the unconditional love that is Yours. Loving them, Father, enough to tell them before the time comes. Lord, thank You for Your Word tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.